time around we're going to be talking about Downhill Racer. It's directed by Michael Ritchie and it stars Robert Redford and Gene Hackman. Uh, it was released in 1969. It was not a big hit, but it's still around. So, yeah, spoiler alert, um, we're going to talk about the film in like, detail. We're going to ruin the ending. Yeah, um, we can't really dance around the plot for an hour without revealing no, things. Uh, so. But maybe watch it once and then come back. So how many times have you seen Downhill Racer? And do you remember your kind of first impressions? I've seen it three times, I think. First time, I actually had to try twice the first time because... Previous films I'd seen by Michael Ritchie are quite um, warm and generous, I'd say, by comparison. And obviously that's not just in terms of, you know, visually, because Downhill Racer is kind of a lot of white on white and stick figures against snow. Um, they're actually quite warm and generous towards the characters, and there's a lot of the character observation is is kind of fascinating, and it feels more sort of collage So with the coldness of Downhill Racer, I was initially put off and had to stop after 20 minutes and come back to it another day and watch it all the way through and once I've done that you can appreciate it it's it's it is of a piece with his other films it is like a little collage of observations that, that yeah, build up sure. so yeah it did take me a little while to get into um, and then the second time obviously on blu-ray I was a lot more comfortable with it and then the third time watching it for this discussion um, again I was able to just look at more details in it yeah I saw it first a few months ago um, I watched the first half with my little boy and you have to Remember, Downhill Racer was made in 1969, so it's you know it's 50 years old this year, and uh, there's a few you know techniques like the speed ramps, which I thought maybe looked a bit hokey, mm-hmm. but you know he's he was six years old when we watched it, and he was jumping up and down in his chair, slapping his legs, you know, really cheering the skiing sections, and I think you know that's can you imagine 50 years ago sitting in the cinema and watching that film? It must have been. You know, stunning. Yeah, yeah. And it's only you know it's one year after two thousand one. I wonder. I wonder how much of the experimentation in the editing came from the kind of like the feeling of the time because there was a lot more visual experimentation, a lot more cutting experimentation. I watched in the heat of the night for the first time ever a couple of months ago. Oh yeah, okay. And that was cut by Hal Ashby before he became a director. And there's some, you know, there's some fairly experimental editing in that. There's a particular little bit at the beginning, just of a car coming to a halt, and there's a little speed ramp in the middle of that. And you think, I wonder how how much of the style of downhill racer is was, if not dictated, then sort of subtly influenced by some of the stuff that was going on otherwise. You know, you mentioned two thousand and one. Yeah, that's yeah. A big breakthrough for audiences in terms of what you can do, you know, with film cutting and how how you can pace the film differently. Um, I'm wondering if 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 any of that, because downhill racer is is quite, I wouldn't say choppy in the sense that it was clumsy, but it's choppy in the sense that it's quite brittle and fragmented, and a lot of the scenes kind of there's sort of short truncated scenes that have a little bit of information in, and then you move on to the next, but then within within the ski racing, of course, it's it could be that a lot of it's just to capture the sweet spots in each each shot to tell a story. Yeah, I mean, there's some, moving. some beautiful montages when they're setting up, you know, the world of the high mountains and, you know, the detail of downhill racing and the, the technical aspects of it, you know, from the, the ticking clocks, you know, the, there's, I think, maybe the second race, there's a really nice sequence of skiers just leaving the gate, cut to the beat, of the mm-hmm. clock as it counts down the five, four, three, two, one, and it's just racer after racer bursting through. You know, there's loads of kind of there's loads of sequences where they just play with time. I think the film is set over the course of three years, um, but there's never any real uh, statement of time passing. You know, sometimes yeah, lots of stuff happens. You know, in five minutes, and you know, and then the next thing is you're back eight months later for the new season and mm. really that's the only <laughs> indication of that is is an edit and it feels quite fragmented as well because even within the space of of scenes that are you know taking taking place within the same time period because it was shot on 35 and 16 mm. and you've also got some fairly obvious stock footage in there occasionally yeah it feels even choppier because of that mm. it's brave though. i think there's like lots of energy to that, that experimentation and i think you know maybe cynical filmmaker later on in you know the 
history of cinema might have taken some of that stuff out. Mm. But, you know, it feels like it's, you know, you think he's years ahead of the, the movie Bratz in the 70s. So. Yeah. Oh, there's one thing I want to discuss, which which I don't know how to fit into a broader theme. But did you notice, obviously, there's, there's the obvious one halfway through where um, where you get a slight fake out where you... It's where it... it I'm not going to try and attach it to any kind of grandiose theme. It was just two, two. One, one of them was quite a good joke, where the uh, newsmen kind of mistake another skier for Robert yeah, Redford. Yeah, no, that's really nice. That was really it? funny because yes. I, I was looking at it thinking, "Are you, are you sure?" Yeah, and then yeah. they cut to one side. Oh no, this, this is actually. Yeah, that's here. really nice. Yeah, that's that's a really good gag with the journalists, and the scene that precedes it is one of the kind of first. Um, clashes of personality you get between Hackman and Redford as they're stood at the back of the team minibus and uh, Chaplet's talking about being positioned better in the team and for, you know further up in the uh, in the you know launching out of the uh, yeah. get the gate the earlier he is the softer the snow the faster his run etc and uh, Hackman says to him you finished fourth in one race don't expect to be given the world and he says I don't expect to be given anything <laughs> and Hackman just says good <laughs> on the bus <laughs> And it's a really sort of tense moment that, you know, there's just this kind of bad atmosphere between them. So I think that's why they just lightened the tone a little bit with that, that mm. gag straight afterwards. It's a really nice sort of way of keeping you in the film and not, not pushing you out a little bit. The other one that, that I'm still puzzled about, uh, would probably have to dig deeper into supplementary materials or something, um, is the opening of the film where it opens with another skier who's seriously injured and yeah, obviously knocked it. out of Hackman's team. Hmm. I had to go back to the film a second time around to check that opening because they do sort of play with the possibility that that's Redford's character. Because they're always... They just, oh, you right. just get passing glimpse of his, glimpses of his face and he's very much the same physical type, uh -huh, same okay. hair, same same skin colour and everything. And they always cut away just Maybe before you get to his face. Or, uh... Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, are we are we looking back on this? Is it actually a, a bleaker film than we think? But no, it's 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 a different character who's knocked out of the team to make room for for Redford. Well, so, I mean, maybe you're onto something there. I don't know if that's maybe the the narrative or that's something he has to look forward to, or it's just something yeah. But it's kind of the you know the inevitability of downhill skiing is that at some point you're going to come a cropper you yeah. know they all come off don't they at some point or another and it's how well you sort of bounce through that you know we see Creech after he uh, takes a tumble you know you think he's going to go when him and Redford have that little race down the yeah. down the slopes where Hackman goes mental at them um, and you think Creech is going to come off then and hurt himself and it'll be Redford's fault and Hackman will come at him but they both survive that without and there's a really nice little moment of connection there between yeah. them no words they just look at each other with a sort of slice you know elite sportsman's grin you know reminds me a bit have you seen Le Mans with Steve McQueen no there's a really nice scene at the end of that where he, he beats his kind of main rival and just sticks his fingers up at him <laughs> and that's it you know there's no kind of big talk or anything it's just like yeah fuck you and so there's that's really nice because you know all the way through the film Red Redford's looking for a connection to another person and it's kind of his teammate. Mm. But you also see Creech when they're at the Olympics and his legs busted up. He's still there with the team. They're dragging him along, but he's got nothing to do. He just sits in, in the shed, you know, yeah. on his bum, hands on his knees, watching the other team, uh, the rest of the team as they focus and prep for their Olympic downhills. So I think that's, you know, the reality of, of the sport is it, it is really dangerous. And mm. once you're done, you're done, you know, it you can't some of those injuries you can't come back from yeah i was just wondering about because it was it was very carefully filmed so it's not to reveal that it's it's you know so, that it's, yeah. a, it's, it could potentially be redford's character and we could be looking at the rest of the film in flashback yeah yeah but it's not it's just another well, team member yeah the guy that played that character is uh joe j jalbert who um so I checked this, I did a little bit of research on this. It's Joe J. Jalber, and he captained the University of Washington Alpine ski team for four years and was an athlete competing in the U.S. ski team. And then he was hired as the technical director and Redford skiing double. He took a cameo role as the skier that breaks his leg at, at the beginning of the film, allowing Redford to move on to the team. But then he ended up as the cameraman, um, and he's credited with pioneering that fast handheld technique uh, for filming the, the sports and the skiing. And in an interview with Criterion, he says, uh, I saw quickly that a toboggan with a cameraman on it 
chasing a downhill racer that was going 80 miles an hour. It did not work. So I literally just said, guys, give me the camera. And he started skiing alongside the other stunt doubles and then tracking on Redford. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. So he was, and he actually, after that, he, um, so he was a skier and he worked with Redford on Butch Cassidy and on Jeremiah Johnson. And then he set up like a, an ex, you know, in the 70s, set up an extreme sports filmmaking production company. And he did opening sequences for the Olympic, Winter Olympics and things like that. So he kind of made a career off the back of that being a superb skier and able mm. to hold, you know, a 35 mil camera yeah. at speed really down the slopes. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So all of that kind of handheld stuff when they cut into, you know, Redford thundering down the slopes, you're like, my God, that's him. Yeah. You know, that's those two guys skiing alongside each other. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we should talk about that, the, the camera techniques for filming the skiing. Like I say, my little boy had like a really kind of, you know, genuine reaction to the speed of it. And I think it's really nice that the skiing sequences are shot with that sort of energy and they save their trump card, that point of view downhill descent at speed. They save that for uh, Redford's first run. So the first time he goes down the slopes, we're, yeah. we're in his head, we're in his eyes and it's really fast. It feels, you know, really terrifying. And then I think, I don't know about you, but it certainly made me think I'm probably not cut out for you know, downhill skiing. I don't mm. think that's really in my... Uh, is Redford the first person that we... I can't remember it that clearly from the beginning. Is his the first point of view that we get? Because we yeah. get a lot of skiers going first. and Yeah, yeah, we get lots of cool skiing shots. Ah, uh, yeah, and then the, we always cut before we go over the uh, the lip of the of the slope, don't we? And then with Redford's one, we, uh, well, we stay no, with him. You never, see, you never see the descent from another skier's point of view. Mm. It's only his point of view. You see, you have lots of kind of in tandem and lots of kind of crash zooms and lots of tracking shots. But yeah, the first time you see the slopes from a skier's perspective, it's with Redford. It's quite it's quite interesting that it's such a dynamic film visually because I I had always got it in the back of my head that Michael Ritchie came from a documentary film background, but then checking up on it, he didn't. He just came from fairly fairly bog standard episodic TV. Yeah, but you know he's a he's a fan of Ken Loach, and he hired Brian Probin and Kevin Sutton, which was the cameraman and soundman from Poor Cow, and uh, Probin also shot Peter Watkins' The War Game. Oh, okay. So yeah, when you sort of factor that in, he's you know he's sculpting a team that can mm. shoot a film that feels that real and yeah, authentic. Yeah, pseudo documentary feel. With this, it's quite interesting because really it is Redford's film. You know, it yeah, was, it's his passion project, wasn't it, for a while? Yeah, I mean, as I understand the history, it was uh, it's a novel written in the early 60s and was optioned at Paramount with Robert Evans and, and then just shelved um, for years and nothing really happened with it. Uh, what's what's the name of the girl that plays Carol? Camilla Parv or Sparv? Yeah, that's Robert Evans' ex-wife. Oh, right, <laughs> OK. So you know, maybe that explains how she ends up in the film. Maybe not. It's gossip, I guess. Mm. You know. And did you, as a sidebar, did you also know Natalie Wood? Yeah, was, she was the PA, wasn't she? She was. Yeah, she was doing all sorts of stuff on the film. Yeah, yeah, behind the um, scenes. Behind the scenes, and gets herself kind of carefully disguised in crowd scenes. Oh yeah, okay. I think she was going out with one of, or married to one of the producers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Did you know, incidentally, that Sylvester Stallone? I did. <laughs> cameos in uh, not it's not a cameo. He's an extra in the restaurant scene. Right. Although I've watched it twice and zoomed in, and it doesn't look like him at all. Yeah. It should be worth pointing out here that, that Shane is a Sylvester Stallone obsessive. I'm not, not obsessive. I'm a, I'm a respectful fan. You're a recovering obsessive. <laughs> That's it. So, Sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, so it was in development at Paramount um, and Robert Evans resurrected it for Polanski uh, to try and entice him into doing uh, a film about skiing, which apparently Polanski loves. He's a, he's a skier. Um and then to do Rosemary's Baby, which he later went on obviously to obsess over. Was he was he lined up to do Rosemary's Baby as well? It, well, it was a kind of a two picture deal, I think. Okay. Um, and then as he, you know, sunk further into Rosemary's Baby, he walked away from uh, Downhill Racer. But but Redford was already on board at that stage, and then I think Redford kind of picked it up. And he was the Redford brought in the novelist James Slater, and apparently Slater's starting point for the story was provided by Polanski. Um, Slater hadn't read the book, 
the novel. Right. I skipped it. Um, <laughs> but Polanski told him that the film should be a modern day high noon where the sheriff is killed and someone is called in to replace him. And so obviously for the film, the sheriff is the lead racer on the team who breaks his leg and Chaplin is called in to replace him. That's uh, tenuous at best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's history, it's written, it's written, it's film history, it's written down. Right. Uh, on my phone. Um, and then it went into limbo at the studio and because uh, they sued Redford for walking away from uh, a western called Blue. Um, and then Redford revived Downhill Racer uh, at Golf Western and then brought in Michael Ritchie and off they went. I wish somebody had written a book about Michael Ritchie because... It's a really good Hollywood career. Long, isn't it? L- Long. Yeah, hundred credits or something. Yeah, and um, you know there there is there is very 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 good at the beginning, and there is very 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 bad at the end. But I was thinking about it this morning. Even even with a string of very successful bad movies later in your career, he he survived. You know, he's a very, very sort of late 60s, 70s director and his 70s movies are 70s movies sure. in character. And then there's like a slight crossover period. But then his 80s movies are extremely 80s movies. Like he made the two Fletch movies with Chevy oh, yeah, Chase okay. and The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. He made The Golden is, Child? Yeah, he did. That's mad. The Golden Child is a very strange film. I, I, I have seen it all the way through, but the... That Isn't was, it supposed to be like an Indiana Jones type thing, High Road to China, all of those kind of it's not really, romancing it's, stones? No, it's like an, it's a weird, it's Eddie Murphy in LA, I'm pretty sure it's LA, um, so you've got basically Eddie Murphy being Eddie Murphy in LA, looking like LA as Tony Scott would shoot it. Oh yeah, okay. But then it's got some special effects by ILM. And it's got some sort of cod Asian magic in it. Oh yeah, okay. Like um, big trouble in little China. Big trouble in little China. Um, and I've seen like a twenty-minute chunk of it on TV one night, and it's barely a film. Oh. You know, you watch it and you think this is just a strange assemblage of studio notes, like <laughs> cut together. It's a really weird thing. But you know, I want to see it now. As as a career, you know, he he, he survived. Hmm. He got right the way through to about the early 90s before he kind of dropped off the map. Yeah, how old was he then? He must have been like 60, 70. Yeah, mid-60s, I'd say. Um, but yeah, there is there is no book about Michael Ritchie, as far as I can tell. You know, there's books about Hal Ashby. I'm even looking at a book about Alan J. Pakula up on the shelf oh, yeah, there. Okay. There is a book about him, um, but there isn't a Michael Ritchie one. It's very it sounds odd. like you've got a project to, <laughs> to start working on. And I'd like to know is more about alive, him. Michael Ritchie? No. Died a while back. Mm-hmm. I remember. I remember the obituary in Sight and Sound. So it would have been around the two thousands oh, yeah. that he died. Yeah, I think Michael Ritchie. I've seen um, obviously Downhill Racer and Prime Cut. Yeah, which was also part of like my Hackman uh, season, sort of ongoing season where I'm trying to see everything that Hackman's done. Um, that, that's a lifetime project <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's it but those are the only two Michael Ritchie films I've seen and I think I had the same reaction to that as, as I did watching Downhill Racer which is that weird sort of middle section where he looks at the male characters he looks at their relationships mm. and they don't really have like proper relationships so yeah. you know who knows what's going on at the time but maybe that's more research for your book <laughs> I can tell you're going to go away from the end of this chat laden with well, certainly with the candidate and possibly bad news bears. Yeah, I, I want to see the candidate actually because I think Redford intended uh, Downhill Racer to be the first of a trilogy of films about winning in America okay. or what it, winning means to Americans mm. at that period. So there's this, the candidate, which is also about winning, and then they say he sort of loosely rounded out the trilogy with the natural, you know, his. Baseball movie. Ooh. And he's he's talked about linking Downhill Racer and The Natural, mm. about the downbeat ending of one and the sort of upbeat fireworks ending of the, of the other. Um, yeah. I mean, as a, again, as a sidebar, I, I need to watch it again. But I, I, I've seen The Natural on television, and then I've read the novel. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and they are, they are worlds apart. Mm-hmm. 
it's um, Bernard Malamud novel. Oh who, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And it's he did the tenant. And, yeah, uh, it's extremely bleak uh, Bernard Malamud novel, and it's Barry Levinson and Redford turned it into this kind of fireworks, optimistic, hope and glory yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. USA. Yeah, I remember reading the novel after seeing the film and thinking what a betrayal the film was. <laughs> yeah, I'd been doing a Gene Hackman season at home. I'd been watching some of his more recent stuff like Unforgiven, uh, Heist, The Replacements, Unforgiven, Split Decisions, um, and then I started going back looking at uh, Conversation, uh, Prime Cut, and then noticed that he had an early role in Downhill Racer. So, yeah, I got the Criterion and looked at that, and yeah, it just blew me away, actually. I only watched it recently, a few months ago, and watched it again uh, for the podcast. Yeah, it's a good one for Gene Hackman, isn't it? Because it's just pre-stardom, isn't it? It's like two years before French Connection, and he was still at that point. From what I've read recently, he was because he's obviously quite a difficult person on set, and he was even difficult back in those days. So it's difficult to get him jobs. But there are there are those films just before he was a huge star after the French Connection, where he's really really working hard. Yeah, it's great. You can see, you know, it's. He plays quite a few coaches later in his career, but you can see in this, you can see the kind of tr the, the man trying to take control of a team and maintain control and having, you know, been gifted a star skier that could change his career in an instant, mm. but also to try and curb that guy's yeah, individual he's... ambition. <laughs> you know, you can see the, the fire in him trying to he's, pull that back. He's, he's not the coach who kind of gets involved in men's kind of gets involved in men's problems and psyches as well he's he kind of he's quite standoffish and he's works with them at a distance he yeah, doesn't kind of he's old school isn't he? he's cruel yeah you know but not there's none of that sort of ranting that you get from i don't know al pacino in any given sunday you know he's he there's that scene where he's just sat with redford in the cafe it's just the two of them and he just keeps saying to him you're weak you yeah know? just he's, under his breath you know it's a whisper almost you're weak and also at the end you know when they're at the olympics and see the Redfords in with a chance of winning and Hackman doesn't give him any pep talk or any sort of buoyancy he just says like like you can win like it's just a, a statement a mm. quiet statement and then he just skis off and leaves him alone at the top <laughs> of the mountain to to do the rest of the work but as, as an actor he does get the biggest most actory scene in the film it's quite odd because or we'll come back to Redford as a star a bit later on but it was you know Redford is kind of like the elusive the elusive character that you can't quite get a handle on throughout the entire film and you would expect him as the star to get the big scene but it's yeah. actually Hackman gets the big pep talk scene which is slightly at odds with the rest of the film yeah but on on second view that pep talk scene because he's sort of what's the first time I saw it it felt like it was like a, an outtake because he's he's stuttering and tripping over his words but he's also you know the guy trying to tame the wild man in his team mm. you know so he's nervous i think he's intimidated by you know redford's character and then he starts to take control of the situation and then there's that really cruel moment which i think is kind of one of the subtexts of the film which is the, the class struggle between them where you know hackman drops his trump card and just says to redford you didn't have a real education did you because all the other skiers, they're Ivy League, they're from Dartmouth, mm. and you know Hackman's probably from that world. You know, you see how easy he steps from being the coach into the guy trying to raise the money for the team, and yeah. able to talk to huge heads of business, and you know, do all of that kind of raising capital. Whereas Redford, he can ski. That's it. You know? Yeah, you kind of get the feeling as well that Redford's character in in the small town that he's in, because obviously you know, he's he's good-looking guy about town you can tell that from the way that he visits yeah, back it. home and instantly. yeah we all know that guy from school yeah he's like too but handsome. he's he's like the big fish in the small pond and then he's come into this world that he's completely unfamiliar with and he's mm. very very uncomfortable you know particularly when his his kind of cultured beautiful girlfriend kind of outstrips him in every single way yeah, yeah sure. um and leaves him wanting the attention that he's used to having from women mm. all all through his life um yeah I also think that with the Redford character, Chaplet, you know, he is kind of, he's an only child. He's from a, a quite a cold, you know, it seems it's just him and his father back home. There's no mother around. 
he seems uh, quite starved of affection. I, you know, talking about the central character, I do feel like some of the reviews I read from the time kind of missed the point of uh, his character, that I think he is likeable and he's sensitive and he's quite open, but I think he's closed off to his teammates, cause, not because of any sort of aloofness or being cold, but just because of the class difference, because they're basically posh kids and he's a poor kid. And I think that's why he's standing off, because he doesn't want to expose himself as having a lack of education, essentially. Uh, there's quite a few lines in there that I think are really nice. It's quite spartan, the script, um, but I think everything is, is well chosen. I love um, he's talking to his roommate, the guy he's going to be bunking with in, for the first act and he says so you know where do you know one of the other skiers from and he says Dartmouth um, we were on the ski team together and he says I was one of the Olympic hopefuls I was hopeful not then and then he goes into the bathroom and Redford just sort of covers his face and just says Dartmouth you know like mm. this idea that he's haunted by his own class I think is mm. maybe maybe it's there mm. and then uh, the scene after that is the first time the team hit the slopes and Redford doesn't race he, he's given the position so far back in the in the pecking order that yeah. he's given like 88 or something and he just says you know he says to Hackman like, if I start there well, I'm going to be just it's going to be shrapnel basically yeah he's going to be skating on, on ice isn't yeah, he? yeah yeah so uh, he just doesn't turn up but you don't see that all you see is um, him in the cafe with Red uh, with Redford and Hackman in the cafe and Redford saying, you know, that's, that's not a good position to start from. And then the next scene is him laying on his bed and his roommate's like, why didn't you race? You know, they don't bother showing any of that mm. stuff. You just know the fact that he's there and his roommate's like, <laughs> his roommate says, why didn't you race? The next race after that, Redford is bumped up and the only interaction you get from him and Hackman Hackman just says you did so well in the last race they decided <laughs> to move you up and it's just this sarcastic like you know passive aggressive statement you know it's like okay this is how it's going to be mm. I guess one of my, my favourite scenes which is kind of about this idea of uh, being an individual on a team is when Creech is talking to the, the coach's assistant Alex and he says talking about Redford's character he says you know he's he's not a team player he's not He's not one for the team. And then Alex just says to him, well, it's not exactly a team sport, is it? Mm. It's weird how that ties into Redford being a loner amongst this sort of team of people who share a common background that he doesn't yeah, share. Exactly. Um, maybe he's kind of like more suited, temperamentally suited to the job, to the task, to being a winner, purely because he's a loner and he can't find his feet amongst these people. He can kind of see through that fallacy. It's not really a team, is it? It is about him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, everyone wants to win. Everyone yeah. doesn't want the There's team only to one win. Winner, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you see, you know, I don't know much about Formula One, but you see the teams there. A lot of the press is always about how the 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 drivers are pushing to win when the team are pushing for placement of the entire team. Yeah, um, and I guess it's similar to what they're looking at there. I think there's there's something interesting about sports being a way for working class people to change their destiny. Maybe it's it's a great leveler because regardless of your background, you have you know, you have to put in the time and the effort, and you have to be obsessed with it to reach the goals. Yeah. And the goals are the same no matter. Yeah. And once you've achieved that, the rewards are pretty much the same regardless of where you come mm -hmm. from. I mean, obviously, you can sort of finesse it and say that if you're from an Ivy League background, you'd be better at better at sorting out sponsorship deals but the yeah. deals are there and the money you can is... imagine like the ivy league the rest of the team those guys that did go to dartmouth they are probably trained lawyers or yeah you know they have a career they have a fullback exactly whereas redford's out on a limb you know if he does break his leg he's, he's done basically. he's back he's, he's taking back over his dad's farm, farm yeah. exactly which is being run into the ground you know his dad's just wiring up the chicken coop isn't he it's not like he's out there cattle going across the American plains, you know, he's got the chickens and yeah, his space. A couple of acres and, and yeah. a raggedy building. But I think there's a, a really nice scene where he goes to see his dad at the beginning 
and we see that his dad is also you know a man of few words and you know emotionally stunted mm. but there's one line and i think you know some of the dialogue is really precise and i don't think it's by accident that it's really pared back and there isn't much discussion but his dad just has one line which i thought says a lot about the redford character and it's where Redford's talking about travelling the world and all the things that he's seen, and his dad's not impressed, but he he just kind of says, "Oh, your your cousin says thank you for the stamps," <laughs> which I know it's, it seems like so random, but then you have to imagine Redford's character travelling the world and making sure that he nips into a post office, picks up stamps, collects them for his cousin, puts them in an envelope, sends them back. You know, there's a whole kind of other thing going on which shows that you know he is kind of looking for a connection to other people you know they say your cousins are kind of your early best friends don't they mm. it's quite odd it, he never he never struck me I, having had it explained to me i can i can see it and see what you mean uh, but it, on on viewing he always does strike me as something of a cold fish and you know th- those are that's a very good explanation for it and i'll probably not look at the film in the same light again but he does and and I wonder again if some of that is deliberate in terms of the performance because it, it's it's an anti-star performance, isn't yeah, sure. it? It's it's like a, you know a, a Ryan Gosling performance fifty years ago, yeah, yeah. where you're doing as little as possible to ingratiate yourself with the audience. Mm. Um, it, it's so. hard when you look like that, you know. You kind of <laughs> you know it feels like some beast up on the screen. Then I think you know it yeah. can come across much worse. But I noticed in a few reviews from the time that they talked about his vanity. But really, I think that's him just preparing himself. It's the morning of his Olympic race. He goes yeah. goes to the mirror, and it's not like he's just staring at himself. He's, you know, he has a shave. He kind of has his ritual, his his preparation ritual. I don't mind a tinge of vanity in there for the character yeah, because I mean, he's an Olympic athlete. It's not just that. It's because he's has he has been as I said like a, a big fish in his town. He was obviously the the best looking guy in high school. Yeah, right, right. And that that would be part of his character, just to be very aware of how he looks. Yeah, yeah. And it's the one thing he's probably still got. Well, now he's a big fish in a big pond. Like you know, he's he's an Olympic athlete. Yeah, wearing and a... you would be aware of your appearance. Yeah, you, yeah, of you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't not do that. Yeah, yeah. I'll take that actually. Like fifty fifty. It's kind of half of it's about his ritual, and half of it's about acknowledging where he is and yeah, what and, he's achieved and what he looks like yeah 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 it's but it's, I he always comes across as, as, as a lot frustrated a lot more selfish to me particularly in the you know the final scene with his girlfriend where he's he's felt himself outranked and just responds in the most childish yeah arrogant that, that way again, that you can on second viewing you know I think the first time I saw the film I found it frustrating that the whole of the middle act is this kind of uh slightly uh, loose relationship that isn't really developing and seems to take place over about an 18 month period Mm. but then on second viewing it just felt like he's the one that's saying you know shouldn't this be moving forward into something shouldn't we be getting closer like he's after that closeness he comes to her workplace looking for her you know he's, um, he's he makes time to spend Christmas with her and she just fucks off and leaves him alone in the mountains you know he's and I think part of that is that he doesn't have anything to go home to and it doesn't feel connected to his teammates so yeah. it's kind of he's he's out there alone basically and mm. he believes in the connection that he has with her more than she does yeah what's quite interesting the scenes where he's been emotionally shunned by somebody he feels like he's close to like for example uh, when his his dad kind of blanks him there's a nice scene where he says to his dad, oh, you know, the, the car's still looking good. You know, what about if you knock off early and we'll go into town and have a drink? So he's trying to connect to his dad. Yeah. And his dad just says that the keys are in it if that's what you want. Mm. You know, he's not like, oh, I don't fancy a beer or I've got work to do. He's just like, take the car. And, you know, doesn't care. And so that's the next scene after that is Redford picking up, you know, his local girlfriend and just <laughs> treating her like dirt. And I think the same thing happens with uh, when he's kind of, I don't. He's not spurred by Carol, is he? It's he sits in the in her Porsche and she gives him his Christmas present, which is yeah. She's quite happy to carry on on her own terms. Yeah, and he he just feels well. He wants something more. I think that's it. You know, he's he's that's what's interesting for this as a male character. Like he's desperate to 
to, for the relationship to evolve into something deeper, even if he doesn't say it, you know, he's, he's trying to will it forwards. Mm. He's trying to show. Uh, Do you think there's an element in that scene though, where she's she is slightly portrayed as kind of selfish and a little bit um, unaware of of well, unaware of just anything outside her, because she is just she is well, effectively kind, kind of, of just blathering about what she's been doing over, over Christmas. Over Christmas, yeah, and her brother was Santa Claus and those kind of things. But I think what she's trying to say is, I don't want anything deeper, mm. you know. Which is traditionally it's the male role. Oh, you know, you're trying to take me away or whatever. So, for, and then he just hits the horn on the car <laughs> and, and shuts her up, and she walks off. It's like they both understand it. But the scene that comes directly after that is him and Creech with their downhill, you know, off-piste race to the bottom where Redford, you know, they're at the top of the hill, they've finished training, top of the mountain, they've finished training, and Redford just looks at him and says, beat you to the bottom, Mm. that's it, and then off they go, you know. And then I think that's it, that's the connection that he's been looking for, because then the scene that you see uh, after Creech has his crash and they're in the the hospital and Creech is all kind of, it's it's in traction, basically. Mm. When Redford comes in, there's a really nice connection between them you feel like you know they're, they're I don't know friends but they're certainly you know on, on par with each other yeah and then Hackman comes in afterwards and is you realize that he's quite cold with Creech you know he doesn't have a, a spiritual connection with him it's still like coach skier yeah and, he doesn't and skier who's like redundant now because yeah. he's not going to ski so he brings him some magazines pats him on the wrist you know and Redford at least he says to him you know like uh get them next season oh you'll get them next time and, and he's like what the next olympics is like four years away you know mm. it's like his window is shut basically yeah and yeah so i think that a lot of the film is about very subtly very coldly even redford looking for that connection and in the end you know the person he has that connection with is hackman <laughs> do you think do you think hackman comes from a similar ivy league background as as the rest of the skiers because obviously Hackman is is always yeah, that's it. he's always a working class character he's down to yeah, earth and yeah, so, you know it. really salty and relatable I wonder if he isn't just more comfortable with that background because he spent a lot of time in it yeah I I wonder if he isn't like a you know the sort of the scholarship student that kind of goes Ivy League because mm. of his you know excellence you know that that ferocity that is innately hackman you know mm. anything he's in you know yeah so i think he's from he's probably had an ivy league education but from like a working class start his parents probably moved from working class to middle class and were able to just push him through yeah on, on into that world the basis of some sort of scholarship or something so he's been around these people for decades and is well, actually, not that many decades. You always think of Gene Hackman. As yeah, that's it. You always think like, fifty, doesn't like it? Like late middle age, but um, no, he's probably been around them for for a good few years. And and yeah, seven years, I think he says he's been coaching at one point when he's when he's chewing Redford out. Yeah, and he's, but at he's, the same time, there's there's no kind of like working class fellowship or anything between him or or anyone. No, no, that's it's it. Just, and uh, Hackman never talks about where he's from. You mm. know, you'd, you'd never get any indication of that. You know. It's just how he carries himself and that authority. And the cruelness, I think, is uh, is key to him. Mm-hmm. I need to know more about Redford. He's, he's one of those people who's... I'm not, I'm not an actor-based film viewer. Sure, I don't sure. regularly go and see films because it has a certain person in. Yeah. It's more sort of behind the scenes. So up until now in my life, it's always been like, you know, you'd only watch maybe three Redford movies a decade. Yeah, I think the only Redford movie I've seen in the cinema was Sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, up until... I think I've seen something more recently, but yeah. Redford, I have a biography on my wish list to read on holiday at some point in the future because I'd like to know more about how his career dovetails with a lot of interesting people. Yeah, and you look at Sundance and all the kind of work he's done to promote film and you know maintain a kind of integrity to cinema and not just a sort of commercial aspect to it i think sundance has always been about celebrating mm. you know storytellers and filmmakers and he's he's you know when you look at his imdb throughout the 70s which is you know from the from 69 onwards was his peak really there's not that many crowd pleasers in there you've got butch cassidy and you've got the sting a few years later yeah, yeah. But a lot of the other ones are sort of like middle ground, Sydney Pollock, social conscience type movies. Mm. 
a lot of them all the way through and that that goes right through until the um you know right right up until out of africa type period yeah so sure, you, sure. for somebody who's maintained the status as a superstar it's actually quite quite a good solid filmography yeah right you know once i don't know this is something that i find as i get a bit older like once you spend your younger years chasing down the, the the sort of you know the firebrand filmmakers like your Scorsese's and you know if, yeah, if you're going to watch an actor really, in something it's a De Niro or a Keitel. Yeah, they're easy entry points, aren't they? Yeah. To break away from like the commercial but, stuff. But once you've done that and you get sort of a bit older, you think, well, I quite fancy just watching a Sidney Pollock movie, which which does some interesting things without setting the screen on fire. Yeah, that's it. That's why I'm doing like a. A long Hackman season. Yeah, it's the same sort of principle, just to see, you know, an actor burning across the screen. Yeah. But also, you know, he chose his films well. You know, I think there's a few sellouts there, but essentially, you know, he's doing solid work. Yeah. I'm just scrolling through um, Redford's uh, filmography. You know, when you just can't bring anything to mind. There's lots of sort of like things that you you look at and you think that looks smart like brubaker and things like yeah, that i like think, brubaker oh, i've not seen it i really like that yeah, yeah. it sort of it kind of echoes he did another film well i guess it must have been 2001 because the posters for it were in the back of some of the 9-11 pictures from new york but he did a film called the last castle with james gandalfini which is a military prison there's a riot at a military prison all right and the the um the poster for it was an inverted Stars and Stripes, Old Glory inverted, mm. and so there's pictures of that with like the dust and the clouds from nine eleven, yeah, all around them. It's pretty powerful, but I think the film flopped. We talked about it being quite focused in that it does kind of like it's there's kind of short abrupt scenes that get to the point and they yeah, move yeah. on, and kind of when you talk about that, the impression is that that you know they've they've worked on it and tried to make it. And cut it back and try to make it, you know, as pointed as possible. Yeah, it's surgical, isn't it? Some yeah. Dialogue. But at the same time, it it does feel loose and it is actually very funny in places. Mm. It's got it's got gags. Oh yeah, there's the scene where he sat with his dad in the kitchen and um, he pulls himself a glass of water from the tap and takes a sip, but the water's quite yellow. And he says to his dad, "What happened to the water?" And he's like, "It's gone bad." <laughs> there's those kind of gags, and then. Uh, there's a really good one introducing the news reporter where you cut to a news reporter on screen and he begins his report, which is something you're used to seeing a hundred times yeah, yeah. as like a TV device. Mm. And then he fluffs his line and goes back and starts again. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of just clues you into what kind of movie this is. It's kind yeah, of, you know, it's it. going to let those loose bits be in there and yeah, yeah. be um, a bit more relaxed. There's another bit where he's talking to his dad and his dad says, uh, have, have you won any races? And he says, yeah. And he's like, have you won any money? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, and then he starts trying to, you know, explain to his kind of farmer father this uh, idea that you're investing in, and, you yeah. know, your time and your energy into something that will pay off later. Yeah, <laughs> it's really nice. Mm. And we haven't discussed one of the big themes at the end, which is almost like a, a, a rug pull at the end. It kind of teases that it's going to pull the rug out from under you, but when he's actually won the race at the end. Well, yeah, there's that moment where he's he really, he's got the the fastest downhill uh, time, hasn't he? So far, and he's and broken the records, yeah, and you assume that that's it. But then, obviously, there's there's more people to race. Yeah, and somebody one more could. guy coming, isn't yeah. there? Is it the German? I think. And it looks like he could steal his thunder at the very last yeah, moment. He's he's catching him, isn't he? He's yeah. you know half a second faster on the turn and half a second quicker here, and then he just like she's off, isn't he? Wipes out at the yeah. very end, and there's you think. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't leave you with an easy win. You just like ah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always you know there, but for the grace of God. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it does end with a freeze frame shot of Redford being lifted up by the crowd, so it sort of fits in with the uh, the sports movie cliches. Maybe it sets the precedent. But yeah, even even when it's you know giving him a victory, it kind of is, is teasing, snatching it away from him again, um, and that would. That, precarious yeah. victories of a sportsman and, and it's built up how much of a disaster it would be if 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 it went away there would just be nothing that would be it yeah, yeah. now that we know yeah there's a lovely interview before the final race with um redford talking to the press and they're like you know you're at the olympics you know what are you going to do next and he just says like this is it mm. like it's just it's all about this it's interesting that the film doesn't suggest in the way that most sports films do that training, 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 and honing and honing and honing will make you a better athlete. Yeah, sure. You don't. You don't follow 
much if any of their training rituals no, or anything like there's that. There's hardly anything in it. There's no kind of big montage sequences of men getting stronger and fitter and faster. Yeah. And it it does seem that that you just kind of you're there and the opportunity's sort of there and a lot of it is down to chance. Mm. There's a lot's made about, you know, uh, the running order if you're sort of much much later in the day the snow will be, you know, that's that's a major factor the snow will be all kind of iced up. Yeah. And make your run more difficult. Um, there's no suggestion that you train for that in any way. It's just mm. you know these things are just. It's a lot of it's down to chance. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of that's really underlined at the end when you know even when you've done your best and beaten the records, there's still a chance that somebody else can do yeah, better. That's it. There's somebody coming down the mountain yeah. faster than you. But you don't get the feeling from this. It's it's not your traditional kind of training film in that these guys are working towards something and not quite getting it and then there's another chance and yeah, they, yeah. they break through. Exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not that sort of film, is it? No, there's there's two, as far as I can remember, two sequences that feature some sort of exercise mm. and that's when they're jogging around the track and the coach makes Redford go again, yeah. which is obviously an instruction from Hackman just to sort of exen- again exert his Authority, position. yeah. yeah. And then the second time is when they're just doing those roly-polies and parallel bars in there. Which, in white which, which is a bit sort of show pony anyway, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but that's about raising finance. Mm. That's what it's there for. So that's what he's talking about at the same time, these ambassadors of the American way of life. You know, and then you see you know, star jumps. Yeah, but for a film, for, for a sport that you know watching the sport, watching people ski, you know, have to be in absolute peak physical condition. Uh-huh. I mean, you have to be like a machine and you also have to be extremely quick-witted mm. and agile and your decision-making has to be spot on. You, you, don't, you don't get the sense of that being trained or honed. You just feel yeah, exactly. that, these, that these are kind of peak athletes and the chances are what they are, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Even at the end of the last race where, you know, you know Robert Redford's put in like his best time and he thunders down the slopes and gets to the end and then you, you see it flash across the screen very quickly as time but they, they don't say there's nothing in the voiceover that says this is the best time mm. it's only the crowd reaction as they sort of swamp him but what's really nice in that moment is just as the crowd reach him it's a blink or you miss it moment but he collapses he drops down to the snow and then they sort of pick him back up mm. so like he's really exhausted himself on that run and then all I've got, my last note is, um, I think that's my last note, uh, shopping at Asda, is <laughs> is just that moment at the end where, you know, let's say that the film is about Redford's journey for a, a human connection, you know, he's looking for something that he doesn't get at home, he doesn't get it in America, and he doesn't seem to be finding it from his European lady friend. And he's kind of lost it with Creech because Creech is out and injured and he's just left with Hackman. It's like, mm. you know, the... Or there's this kind of... Possibly there's that kind of momentary connection. Doesn't he make eye contact with the guy who could have beaten his time? Yeah, yeah, the guy that crashes on the The guy end, that crashes right? at the very end looks like it could have... And there's sort of that connection there. So I wonder if there's kind of the only connections he's going to make is these kind of fleeting moments of camaraderie with people who are actually, you know... The competition yeah that's it they're rivals yeah in some way or another and it's kind of doomed camaraderie anyway because it, it can't you know yeah, yeah. there's only one winner yeah, yeah that's it yeah you know one thing we haven't talked about is the poster i almost bought that poster yesterday oh it was yesterday yeah there's there's one on ebay which is near mint and it's it's in the outer reaches of affordable for me but okay, okay. i thought it was unwise at the moment mm-hmm. um but yeah it's one of the greatest posters of all time. It's beautiful, well, isn't it? I honestly think that that poster, because it's quite, it is quite an obscure film. Mm-hmm. It's never been a hit. It's yeah. not that widely known. I think that poster contributes to at least 30% of its fame. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think it's definitely a poster that I'd seen before I even really knew what the film was about. Mm. You know, it's, it's really, it's minimal, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. So what are your kind of closing thoughts on Downhill Racer and its, I don't know, its position in... Uh, cinematic history it feels like it's sort of drifted away like people don't really talk about it I've never heard it come up in conversation no, no I've never heard anybody talking about Downhill Racer I stumbled across it 
looking through Hagman films. Yeah, I I knew it. I only came across it because I was looking looking up Michael Ritchie, and it was his first film. Um, and then Criterion brought it out, um, and I I would say you know Criterion bringing it out has kept it alive in the world uh-huh, yeah. for another ten years. Um, but it is. I mean, it's a terrific film, but it it is a minor film that, you know, has kind of disappeared a bit. Mm. Um, And I don't think it'll ever be that widely discussed, which is why it's nice to talk about it now. But I put it on a par with, I don't know, movies like Taxi Driver. It feels like it's that kind of budget range, that kind of characterisation, you know, that sort of detail. Yeah, it doesn't have that, it doesn't have the pulpy sort of it's not dirty no it's not as dirty it doesn't have a hook really does it it's it's kind of a it's it would be a hard sell whereas taxi driver i mean the thing that attracted me to the taxi driver when i was 15 16 is that i'd heard about it, it was dead violent yeah yeah that's and it. that's what made me seek it out and from there that launched me into you know well, and i guess you know taxi driver you never think of it being particularly wordy but there is a lot of talking and voiceover and you know it's kind of it's not particularly uh, ambiguous. No, you know, there's a few. Uh, oh, what's the end all about? No, uh, it's it's unusually in unusually and richly made, but it is at the same time propelling you in one direction, isn't yeah. it? Whereas this is just kind of more by comparison, it's sort of more free flowing observations and snippets. And I think it, it it kind of demands an engagement from the viewer and maybe a second viewing at least. Yes, which I think. Yeah, and the first viewing is quite tricky, especially with that sort of weird middle act where all that adrenaline that you get from the skiing just stops, and you you spend your time raising finance, talking about skis and yeah. stiffness of skis, and have a, a non relationship that doesn't go anywhere. You know, it's a very weird mm. middle act on first viewing. So yeah, I think it's it's. I wouldn't say it's dropped off the radar because I don't think it was ever fully on the radar. No, you know, it, it was flopped when it came out. Yeah, but it was dwarfed by uh, Butch Cassidy. But it's um, it's I'm I'm glad it's still alive. 